Reflections on Dante's Paradiso by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 7 No sooner had these words penetrated my hearing than I felt my powers increase beyond themselves, transcendent and elated. My eyes were lit with such new given sight that they were fit to look without distress on any radiance, however bright. Now all he has to do is... He's now not going to be destroyed by seeing the bright light. He simply must now accommodate his eyes to the brightness. I saw a light that was a river flowing. So the first thing is a river of light. Light within light between enameled banks painted with blossoms of miraculous spring and the sparks are flying from the flowers to to the river of light and back and forth. Dante is told he must bend down and drink from the river of light. Beatrice says, the river and the, and the flowers are dim foretastes of their reality. Dante says, no babe in arms that ever wakened hungry from having slept too long could turn its face to its dear mother's milk more eagerly than I bent down to drink in paradise of the sweet stream that flows its grace to us so to make better mirrors of our eyes. That's why we drink of the river of light so that we can become what Beatrice became. That is to say, our eyes can begin to reflect the divine. That someone could look into our eyes and see them pure and able to reflect the divine light. No sooner were my eyes, Eve, sweetly drowned in that sweet stream to drink than it appeared to widen and change form till it was round. River of light is not a river now it is a pool a lake and uh, one of the reasons for that is that we have entered the timeless and you have to have time in order to have a river and so it's now a lake and Dante's vision is growing of what it is this final vision of heaven what it is I have seen masqueraders here below shed the disguises that had hidden them and show their true appearance Just so the sparks and spring flowers changed before my eyes into a greater festival. And I saw the vision of both courts of paradise, that is to say, the angels and the redeemed souls. Oh, and before, when stupefied, he had asked the muses to assist him in his poetry. Now he asked God. Oh, splendor of God eternal, through which I saw the supreme triumphs of the one true kingdom, grant me the power to speak forth what I saw. A very rare thing happens here. It doesn't happen very often at all in Divine Comedy. And that is the rhyme scheme stutters. And the, in, the, in the Italian, vidi, meaning I saw, is repeated three times at the, at the place of the rhyme. Vidi, vidi, vidi. Chiardi keeps it. I saw, I saw, I saw. The, the, the power of Tercerima is that it is, it's, like, it's like waves hitting the beach. The first and third rhyme, the second rhymes with the first and third of the next tercet, the second in that tercet rhymes with the first and third of the next one, and it just keeps coming at you. It's relentless. It just boom, 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 boom. Very rarely in the poem, Dante interrupts that. It's almost as though the poetic heartbeat skips a beat, and he goes boom, 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 boom. It just doesn't go on. It arrests for a moment. Da-da, da-da, da-da. And it's a very 
and it's a very significant event in the poem. And we have to try to figure out what the significance is. I'm not sure I've figured it out. I'm, it's not just me. I'm not sure that the hints that I've taken do figure it out, but I'd like to suggest something in a minute. First of all, he has said many times that he cannot turn into poetry what he has seen. And this is the, this is the poetic expression for that. Because he says, I saw, I saw, I saw. But he cannot turn into rhyme what he saw. He simply, instead of rhyming, puts I saw, I saw, I saw in the place of the rhyme. So the rhyme, if that is a metaphor for the poem itself, uh, stops and simply says, I saw. And now he begins to grow accustomed. What is it that he saw? And he goes through three meta two metaphors before he finally gets to the one that holds up. As a slope shines in the looking glass of a lake below, as if to see itself in its time of brightest flower and greenest grass. So, tear on t so it's a slope around a, a crystal clear lake. So, tear on tear, mounting within that light, there glowed reflected in more than a thousand circles all those who had one return to heaven's height. So, it's an amphitheater. Tear on tear of these great benches that are all thrones. So, it's an amphitheater. And then finally, the right metaphor. And if so vast a nimbus can be bound within its lowest tier, what then must be the measure of this rose at its topmost round? It is finally a rose. And what are we to make of the fact that it is, at the final version, a rose? I want to go back to the fact that he reiterated those three lines, I saw, I saw, I saw. He has, he has corrected earlier indiscretions in his poetic life in the Divine Comedy a couple of times. By doing exactly that, rhyming things, he will do it again, has done it, and will do it again with the word Christ. He only rhymes Christ with Christ. What else could properly be rhymed with Christ and not be blasphemous? Well, he wrote an early poem in his adolescence where he rhymed Christ with, with, uh, with a mundane term and later regarded that as bordering on blasphemy. And there's some sense that he's, his attempt to correct that is in the Divine Comedy where he rhymes Christ with Christ. In Canto 20 of the Purgatorio, he had, he again rhymed three terms, used three terms to, in place of a rhyme, and they were per amenda, meaning to make amends, to make amends, to make amends. little hint here that when he does this, it is in part to make amends. He's saying, now I see, now I see. Now I see. Okay, now we go back to the question, why the rose? The most famous poem in Dante's time was a poem called The Romance of the Rose. T.S. Eliot wrote a book on it called The Allegory of the Rose. That poem was the supreme expression of romantic poetry in Dante's day. Everybody fashioned saw that as the epitome of the romantic expression. The key to that poem was the symbol of the rose, and the rose in that poem represented sexual love. The poet in that poem was trying to pluck the rose despite all the hindrances that might keep him from doing so. There is... So that the rose, the, the term... The, the image of a rose would immediately conjure up 
in those who have been touched by romantic poetry, that's parallel to sexual love. Dante's rose is divine love. Both poems tell about how to enter the rose. Dante had begun his poetic life very much in the context of the Romantic movement, and he came to regard it as limited later on. So he chooses now a rose to represent divine love. There is a 13th century Florentine poem called Il Fiore, which means the, the flower, which is a, an Italian rendition of the Romance of the Rose. A number of Dantean scholars believe Dante wrote that. And they believe that he came to regret it, that he saw the rose as sexual love, and that there is some possibility that he is trying to correct his earlier indiscretion. And he's, his allusion to that correction is, as it was in, in Canto 20, the Purgatorio, Paramenda, 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 to make amends, to make amends. Here it is, I saw... I saw, I saw, meaning perhaps, now I see, now I see, now I see. It's divine love. Sebastian Moore said, People are sexually involved with the lonely problem of God and meaning and not only with each other contrasexually. People are sexually involved with the lonely problem of God and meaning and not only with each other contrasexually. There is a continuity. Dante is the great affirmer. His was the via positiva, the great affirmation of all of that. And so he is affirming that the rose, it, that, that love is a rose. But he's saying it has to, it has to mature beyond the, the place where the Romantic tradition kept it. That he might be correcting an earlier indiscretion is also hinted at in Canto 13, at the end of Canto 13 of the Paradiso, Dante says, I have seen a briar through winter's snows rattle its tough and menacing bare stems and then in season open its pale rose. Maybe referring to his own life. He, he understood his own life to, to, have, to have been, he, he understood that he had lived through a period of desolation and was now returning. At the end of Canto 13. Now, in Mandelbaum translates it. Here's how Mandelbaum translates it. I have seen all winter through the briar display itself as stiff and obstinate, and later, on its summit, bear the rose. In Sulacima means at the summit, open its rose. And of course, it's at the summit of the Paradiso that the rose opens for Dante. And he understands and affirms and updates all that the Romantic poets had been groping blindly towards. And then Beatrice underscores it herself. She says, line 128 of Canto 30, Now see how many are in the convent of the white robes. Behold our far-flung city and see the benches, every one a throne. The words, Mira, Vedi, Vedi. Look, see, see. Now look at it. I love the phrase, the benches, everyone a throne. Common term for seating. All of that and everyone a throne. 
And the strange thing that happens at the end of Canto 30 is that the last words we hear from Beatrice in the midst, concluding this great sublime scene is Beatrice condemning yet another pope. (laughs) She (laughs) She looks down and she says, speaking of the Italian, you know, life in Italy, Tranced in blind greed, your ever-deepening curse, you have become as mindless as an infant who screams with hunger yet pushes away his nurse. Now remember, Dante had said that as a babe in arms, when he was going to drink in the river of life, as a babe in arms goes, who slept too long, he says, awakens after its mealtime, goes to the breast of the mother, Eagerly, the comparison here is the is the, the worldly life of Italy, where, if you want to, in terms of what we how we said it earlier, these are clients of the fallen angels who have turned the urge into an urgency and become so desperate for nourishment that they don't have time for it. See? An infant who screams with hunger yet pushes away his nurse. There you have it. So desperate for nourishment that we don't have time for it. And the canto ends on that strange... And Don, and Beatrice's last words on that note. It will pick up... It's kind of awkward to end our reflections on it at that point because it will pick up in the cantos to follow, following... We'll talk about next week. It picks up the sublime note again. So it really does hold together much better than to end on this kind of... Uh, low note, but it's Beatrice's last, and I think Dante has it be Beatrice's last comment because he wants to abruptly remind us that that life on earth must somehow conform to this vision and and how and how uh, remote life on earth is from that vision. I have some reflections to share, obviously, on Cantos thirty-one, thirty-two, and thirty-three. And some of these reflections uh, will obviously not be Dante's, but I think they are Dante-esque, or I wouldn't be sharing them with you. Most of the time when we use the term Dante-esque, we, we refer to some some horrid thing happening uh, in hell. But we have to remember that the Dante-esque uh, events of the latter stages of the Paradiso are Dante-esque as well. And so what I want, some of the reflections that seem to be uh, outside of Dante's own text, I feel obliged to make because they strike me as relevant. And uh, so I w- would like to do that, but I do so in the, in, in the hope that they will be in Dante's spirit in any case. This week somebody brought something to my attention. I was very pleased that they did because um, it it makes a nice... Uh, introduction to the dilemma that I think Dante is wrestling with in the last three cantos. Somebody suggested that Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, at least the ta- the first eight lines of Yeats's poem, has echoes in it of imagery out of the Paradiso. So what I'd like to do is read those first eight lines and make some comments and try to explore how that might lead us into Dante's 
dilemma. You, you probably know the lines. They go like this. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I want to just take up those last two lines. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Because there's a question of passion for Dante and its appropriate place in a spiritual life. Here's some lines to go from poet to poet to poet. Here's some lines from James Wright, modern American poet. Uh, speaking, I take it, of what appears to be moral rectitude, but may be something much less interesting than that. He says, In the autumn of my blood, the apples purse their wild lips and smirk knowingly that my love is dead. In the autumn of my blood, the apples purse their wild lips and smirk knowingly that my love is dead. That apple of... Uh, that awakens appetite or desire. I pride myself on the fact that I'm no longer grasping at it, only to be, only to hear the, the voice of this smirk, which is, <laughs> your love is dead. It isn't the moral accomplishment. It's the collapse of ardor. It seems like a moral accomplishment, but it's really the collapse of ardor. And it's under those conditions that one could say one, lay, one, one lays the world open to the kind of disaster that uh, Yeats is hinting at symbolically in his poem when the best lack all conviction while it's the worst that have passion. It's the worst that still have passions. The best have somehow, have somehow domesticated their passion and their ardor. And then, of course, the whole poem, The Second Coming, ends with those other two uh, unnerving lines. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. It is the symbolism of the incarnation that Yeats is dealing with as well. And likewise for Dante. These two issues which at least in this Yeats poem, the, the issue of passion was a tremendously important one for Yeats. And in this Yeats poem, it is connected with uh, the symbolism of the incarnation. And those two issues are profoundly important for Dante. Where is the passion and what is the relationship between that passion and the incarnation? When, we, when the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passion and intensity, we're in trouble. I think when I read those lines this week, I thought of Milton's Satan. Everybody who reads Paradise Lost agrees that the most interesting character in the, in the drama is Satan, at least, and, and I think Milton has, uh, has made it appear so because he wants to say something about the heroic ideal. Um, but clearly Satan is the one who appears to have the most energy and the most passion.
in Goethe's Faust, Mephistopheles is the endlessly fascinating uh, and energetic and passionate character, or at least he appears so in, at first glance. Blake complained that we there is a moral uh, agenda in uh, which begins to look with suspicion on too much energy. It begins to suspect that that energy is too much for the moral containment system, and therefore it it uh, labels that energy evil or suspect or whatever. And Blake railed against this condition poetically. He kept uh, insisting that that uh, energy is eternal delight, and that it is not demonic but divine. So if we can make a connection between that energy and the kind of passion that, that Yeats and Dante are talking about, uh, we might see a pattern. What I really want to do as we start out today is connect the question of passion and passionlessness with the incarnation, as, as Yeats has done here in this poem, and suggest, using the Yeats imagery, that an incomplete appreciation of the incarnation may result in a confusion about the passions, a confusion such that the best would lack them and the worst would have them, an incomplete appreciation of the incarnation. And likewise, a failure or a distortion of the, of the passions will lead to incarnational failures so that what we get is some rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem uh, and not the incarnation. Notice the, the verb slouching. Uh, the lack of energy in that it, it is a kind of brute energy, but it is it's something lacking. Well, all that's uh, somewhat hieroglyphic, I, I appreciate. For Dante, the great question at the end of the Paradiso is the question of the incarnation. And what is the proper place of the passions with regard to the incarnation? Or, the, or put it more specifically, what is the role of desire in the spiritual life? And how does that relate to the incarnation? Now, people have uh, uh, variously assessed uh, what happens in the last three cantos. I want to read two assessments and uh, contrast them a little bit. I would agree with both of them with some slight modifications in the first one. The first one is by George Santayana. And I want to quibble with it, but first I'll read it. I, I think the overall sense of it is, 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 is apt. He's sp speaking of this transition for Dante. He says, Love ceased to be a passion and became the, inter the energy of contemplation. It diffused over the universe, natural and ideal, that light of tenderness and that faculty of worship which the passion often is first to quicken in a man's heart. So we've talked about this before here. It is that passion for Beatrice gradually suffusing the whole universe and then being caught up by the creator of that universe. My quibble with that would be 
that Santayana seems to suggest that passion is left behind. And there's absolutely no evidence in the text that that's true. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary. So I would suggest uh, uh, the correction for that would be Wicksteed's comment about the last part of the Paradiso in which he says, passion is here peaceful and peace passionate. And then you get more of the, of the detail of what that suffusion of passion over the cosmos really consists of. It doesn't eliminate the passion, uh, but it makes it indistinguishable from peace. So, important to say, I think, that a too thorough distinction between libido in a general sense and sexual libido specifically or to put it another way, a too thoroughgoing distinction between what we like to think of as agape, Christian love, and what we think of as eros, erotic love, a too thoroughgoing distinction between those two will deprive one of, 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 I think, the great treasure at the end of the Paradiso. Because Dante is not making that distinction quite that sharply. Canto 31 opens, we're in the rose, remember. We learn as it opens that the saved souls have a spousal relationship to Christ. That they are the spouse, that Christ is their spouse and vice versa. That is to say that the relationship between Christ and the saved souls is a conjugal one. And then the next image we have is of, you see, the two realms of beings here, the saved souls and the angels. The next image we have is of the angels. And the angels, in a strange uh, simile, are likened to a swarm of bees. Line 7 and following, like a swarm of bees who in one motion dive into the flowers and in the next return the sweetness of their labors to the hive. Flew ceaselessly to the many-petaled rose and ceaselessly returned into that light in which their ceaseless love has its repose. That's what the angels do. They are like bees. It will seem an awkward uh, uh, point to make at first, but I don't think it will in the overall sweep of these cantos for me to point out that uh, the bees perform a sexual function in the flowering world. They are their, um, the effect of their work is the pollination and uh, the bringing to fruition. So in both the first two images of, the, of Canto 30, there is at least a sublimated image of sexuality, a conjugal love between Christ and the saved souls and the and the angels performing like bees, a central function of which, with regard to flowers, is the pollination. Well, it seems awkward at first, but I don't think as we go through here it will continue to be. Dante makes the point in line 25, this realm of ancient bliss shone soul on soul with new and ancient beings, and every eye and every love was fixed upon one goal. There's a tremendous focus on the Godhead. O oh, threefold light which blazoned in one star, excuse me, threefold light 
which, blazoned in one star, can so content their vision with your shining, look down upon us in the storm we are. That kind of wholeness and focus and God-centeredness is a heavenly quality and not an earthly one, and Dante now calls attention back to us. And he specifically calls attention to himself. He has just awakened, so to speak, in this realm, and he has a tremendously interesting uh, image for what that's like for himself. If the barbarians, coming from that zone above which Helicy travels every day, wheeling in heaven with her beloved son, looking at Rome, let's uh, eliminate the parentheses here, if the barbarians looking at Rome were stupefied to see her works in those days when the latter and outshone all else built by humanity, What did I feel on reaching such a goal from human to blessed, from time to eternity, from Florence to a people just and whole? It's a tremendous slap at Florence, uh, made so deftly that the actual Italian uh, says to a people just and sane. So the transition from from earth to heaven, time to eternity, Florence to the redeemed souls and the angels. By what amazement was I overcome? Between my stupor and my newfound joy, my bliss was to hear nothing and be dumb. Well, that's fine, except he says the barbarians, uh, Dante is no waster of words. He says the barbarians, what he wants to tell us is that they come from the north. And uh, he could have easily said the barbarians come from the north, but he didn't. He said the barbarians, coming from that zone above which Helicy travels every day, wheeling in heaven with her beloved son, looking at Rome. Now, before we, before you object to me pausing from the Divine Comedy to go look at that image, I'll explain why I want to do so. Uh, one of the commentators on the Divine Comedy a man named Kurz, wrote the following. No one who makes much of inspiration at the expense of knowledge, judgment, and calculated art need hope for any success with Dante. While his inventive genius, the triumph of his poetry and vision, music, and story is as safe beyond challenge as Homer's, yet in every line you can trace him taking thought and making sure of every syllable. Well, now if in these lines he was taking thought and making sure of every syllable, why did he not say the barbarians come from the north instead of saying the barbarians coming from where Helicy wheels about uh, with her son? Well, let's find out about Helicy. Helicy is the Greek uh, name for Callisto, who is the, in in Ovid's version, the Roman version, I'm going to, refer to the Roman version here. We know uh, Dante knew it from, the, from Ovid because he knew Ovid so well. Uh, but he uses here the Greek name. He probably had Greek sources for this myth as well. But in, I'm going to use the Greek names, Jove for Zeus, Hera, I mean Juno for Hera, and Callisto for Helice. Same story. Uh, in Ovid's version... 
uh, Job is once again philandering with the mortal women. That's Job has his eye on, on beautiful mortal women. And he looks down one day and sees Callisto. Now, Callisto is a nymph in the service of the goddess Diana, the huntress goddess. And all of her uh, uh, servant nymphs have to be virgins and, and wild and woolly huntresses. And uh, that just increases the appeal, of course, for the old uh, king of the gods. And uh, he looks down. Well, here's, uh, I'm going to read to you from, uh, uh, from uh, a uh, modern translation of the Ovid, which I think puts it beautifully. Upon a maiden there his eye, excuse me, upon a maiden there his mind and eye fixed and the passion in his blood burned high to smooth and spin the wool or set her hair with nice complexity was not her care. A buckle clasped her tunic and she tied her careless tresses with a band undyed. Diana's warrior. Within the virgin forest when the sun High in the heavens his halfway course had run, the hunting maid unstrung her lism bow and let the quiver from her shoulders go and pillowed on the painted quiver lay, couched on the green sward from the heat of day. Jove saw the tired and unprotected maid and this time hoped to hide his escapade from his stern spouse. <laughs> yes. This is uh, his stern spouse, course, is Juno, who has absolutely no tolerance for these little, uh, these little, uh, <laughs> exactly. So, Jove, who so typically takes uh, other forms when these, uh, when these uh, uh, seductions are about to happen, takes the form of Diana, the goddess. So, Callisto, Callisto sees her, her, her goddess, and she says, Hail, my queen, whom I at least revere more than high Jove, though Jove himself could hear. And Ovid, who is a very funny poet, says Jove could and did. <laughs> so I'll read the whole thing. Hail, my queen, whom I at least revere more than high Jove, though Jove himself could hear. Jove could and did. Well satisfied, he heard himself thus aptly to himself preferred. <laughs> so he grabbed her up and uh, and began to ply her with kisses and essentially raped her, not but to find a point on it. Uh, Juno will later, of course, blame this all on Callisto and, uh, and uh, punish her. But Ovid says, The maiden fought as well as maiden might, Juno had softened had she seen the sight, but fought a losing battle and anon, leaving his latest conquest, Jove was gone. Same old story. So she returns to her nymphs and her goddess Diana, and they hunt, and time goes on, and she her belly swells, and she decides one day when everybody else is taking a dip in the stream not to, because uh, she's supposed to be a virgin in the service of Diana. They strip her of her clothes and find out that she is pregnant and banish her from the circle of Diana. And she wanders until the babe is born and the babe is a boy whose name is Arcus, a beautiful uh, semi-deity. 
because his father is Zeus, or Jove. Juno looks down, when the, as soon as the son is born, Juno looks down and flies into a rage and goes and chains, changes Callisto into a bear who has to roam the forest. Her son Ar- Arcus grows up. In his 16th year, he goes hunting. And we pick up Ovid's story. Time passed, and Arcus, in his 16th year, not knowing who his mother was, came near. They meet. His mother sees him, stops and shows by gestures almost human that she knows. And while the boy shrinks back, caught unaware, she eyes him with a long, unwavering stare, then lumbers forward while her son, in fear, levels to strike her heart the deadly spear. But Jove forbade that son should mother slay and swept them with the threatened crime away on wings of wind through space and set them high as neighboring constellations in the sky. Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. See, the two constellations. Juno, outraged by this, goes to the sea deities, Oceanus and Thetis, and says, I tried to make her into a beast. Jove has made her into something almost divine. I want you never to take her into the never to take her into the sea. So they say they will not take her into the sea. Therefore, the constellations are shunted up into that corner of the turning spheres, which never sets. And Juno sort of, of course, shot herself in the foot with that uh, trick because uh, now they are perpetually associated with the North Star, the Pole Star, which is in the constellation of Ursa Minor, and Ursa Major uh, points to that constellation. So, so what, really? See, so what? Well, you go back to what Dante is saying. Kerr said Dante uh, studies every syllable to make sure that he is achieving what he wants to achieve symbolically and linguistically. He said of Helice, that's Callisto, that she was wheeling in heaven with her beloved son. Now, can you think of another mother who is wheeling in heaven with her beloved son? Huh? Okay. And now you get the symbolic anticipation, wheeling in heaven with her beloved son. The point of this, I think, is that at the heart of the mystery of creation is the incarnation. Since that's the heart of the mystery of, the incarn- uh, the mystery of, the, of, of creation of the, of the universe, all we can do is either uh, pervert or or contort the incarnation. Uh, the, the worst evil can do is to, is to pervert the truth. There's nothing else to work with. So imagine Dante's vision is that the incarnation is the core mystery. He's now talking about the barbarians. This is just a little uh, simile, really, but he's talking about the barbarians coming into Rome. The barbarians coming from where Helice or Callisto spends with her son in the sky. This is an instance of the right archetype insufficiently comprehended. The archetype 
is a deity, the, the ultimate father deity, that longs for a mortal maid. The, all joking aside, and there's lots of joking about Job's philandering, the, the theological implication is an incarnational urge. One that, as with us humans, turns into philandering precisely because the urge is not being addressed properly. So he has to go from one to, the one, to one to another to another to another. You, see? you never get enough of what you really don't want. The urge is there, though, even in the, quote, barbarian rendition of the archetype. As a matter of fact, even though the barbarian, quote-unquote, rendition of the archetype is a, a, a insufficient one, it is sufficient enough to give even the barbarian world its one standard for finding its way in the world, namely the North Star. It's not the Star of Bethlehem, which is the real star of the Incarnation. But it's close. I mean, it's a version of it. If one thinks of the Star of Bethlehem symbolically as the real North Star in the Incarnational Universe, then the North Star, which is associated here with Callisto or Helicy, is the best the barbarians could do given their appreciation of the incarnational urge. Well, that sets the tone for so much of what happens in these cantos because it is the mystery of the incarnation and the relationship of that mystery to desire and ardor and sexual longings that has been a mystery to Dante his whole life. And he's now within three cantos of having his final version of it. He's given himself to that mystery. And now he's approaching the place where he's, he is going to uh, finally arrive at its what for him is its resolution. Line 52 of Canto 31, he says, Without having fixed on any part, my eyes already had taken in and understood the form and general plan of paradise. And my desire rekindled. I wheeled about to question my sweet lady on certain matters concerning which my mind was still in doubt. Very important. My desire rekindled. Don't think, as Santayana did mistakenly, that that desire uh, or that passion is being turned into something that we wouldn't recognize as passion. He rekindles it here in Canto 31, and he hasn't finished rekindling it. He turns to Beatrice. She wasn't there. One thing I expected, another greeted me. I thought to find Beatrice there. I found instead an elder in the robes of those in glory. A momentary panic. But what's interesting is that it is so fleeting and momentary. She, where is she? I cried in sudden dread. To lead you to the goal of all your wish, Beatrice called me from my place, he said. And that's the last we hear of Dante's anxiety or dread or confusion or forlornness or anything else with regard to the, to the, to, uh, the fact that Beatrice has left him. And that's, that's uh, in instructive. 
we don't we're not supposed to know yet this is saint bernard but uh, i'll just tell you that and then we'll get introduced in a minute formally but saint bernard says to dante look uh, up there and you'll see her beatrice and he does she's ever so far away but in heaven distance doesn't matter there is nothing to blur uh, so he sees her perfectly clearly and he says in line 79 o lady in whom my hope shall ever soar and who for my salvation suffered even to set your feet upon hell's broken floor through your power and your excellence alone have i recognized the goodness and the grace inherent in the things i have been shown you have led me from my bondage and set me free by all those roads by all those loving means that lay within your power and charity grant me your magnificence that my soul which you have healed may please you when it slips the bonds of flesh and rises to its goal now there's a lot that we have to think about with regard to this passage let me begin with you have led me from my bondage and set me free by all those roads by all those loving means that lay within your power and charity now what were the means by which i think this is dante stating the facts of his life that it was in his continued reverence for his experience of beatrice that he was transformed what were the means of that transformation for dante back as the as that passage begins o lady in whom my hope shall ever soar and who for my salvation suffered even to set your feet upon hell's broken floor for my salvation is in the italian per la mia salute 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 means salvation but if you remember in dante's youth i meant to bring i had a postcard here of that fateful event in dante's youth in the streets of florence beatrice walks down the street dante completely captivated by her and as she came abreast of him she looked at him and she said salute because in italian salute also means hello it literally means salvation but it was a way of greeting and so she said to dante salute and dante went home and poured his soul out on the paper because of that salutation now we can never know what would have happened had this happened in let's say germany where the word for hello may not be the word for salvation but it happened in italy it no i don't mean this in any disparaging way the divine comedy could not have been written by a german <laughs> well forgive me for saying that anyway uh, certainly not in the 14th century well anyway um uh, <laughs> it did happen in italy that's the point and in italy salute which means hello also means salvation and for dante from the very beginning he knew that the literal meaning of that word was central to what had just happened to him when he began to pour his soul out and he began what for him was a lifelong 
exploration of what that was that happened at that moment. He never forgot that the word spoken at that moment was the word salvation. And here he is, near the end of paradise, recalling that original greeting, obliquely but clearly referring to that original greeting. This is his last time to speak to Beatrice, and he refers back to that first time when she said salvation. And now he recalls it. He begins now to refer to her in the intimate, familiar to instead of the more formal voice. You have led me from my bondage and set me free. He's graduated. 